So just before Austin comes, uh, it's the middle of the summer and uh, our crowds are lower and people are on vacation. And if we're not careful, we would miss the significance of what's happening this morning. And so I just want to put it in context for you, if I could. We planted Redeemer 11 years ago now with a 50-year vision of ministry in a city, thinking about how Winter Haven would be experienced differently by our grandchildren because of our ministry in this place. And so we've always had a large vision of what we really wanted to see God do, uh, a vision of multiplication in church planting all over the city, but multiplication of ministries in seeking to have significant impact. Uh, in, our new, in the first new member class that we had as a church, uh, the Snivy family had come to our first service and they came to that first membership class. And one of the things that I do is I draw on the board all the different churches we hope to see planted, you know, and, and here we are in Little Winter Haven, Florida, and I ask the question, you know, where are we going to get where are we going to get the planters and the leaders and the people, the army of people we're going to need to see this vision accomplished? And of course, most times everybody stares at me and, and says, I don't know, that's what you're, you're supposed to tell me that instead of asking me that question. Uh, and when I, asked, when I asked the question and no one answered, I said, it's your children. It's the kids that are running around this place. And Josh and Heather, if we've talked about that in the past. Austin, I think, was probably 13 or 14 at the time. And they both, ex- they both expressed kind of going, <gasps> kind of like, a gasp of, and then, wait a minute, why have we never thought of that? Uh, Ten years later, here we are, and one of those 14-year-old boys that was running around the high school back uh, in those days is now in seminary, training to be a pastor who wants to give his life here uh, with us, Lord willing, in our city. Isn't that an amazing thing? So we've been, yeah, okay. So the Lord says... There's a harvest, and the only thing missing is is workers, is laborers, so pray. And we have prayed, and this morning, it's hard for me not to be emotional, so I can't get emotional because I don't want you to get emotional, but um, we've prayed, and God has heard our prayers, uh, and that's why today is, is fun for me. Now, here's my spiel. I do this when these young guys preach. This is Austin's first sermon. He's never done this before. I actually think he's going to be really good, uh, but... but uh, Churches make preachers, and we want to be a laboratory for young men who are training in ministry. Uh, The way you become good at preaching is to preach, and the way you become good at preaching is to is the way the congregation interacts with you. So here is your job this morning. You have a you have a more important job than he does. His job's easy. Your job's harder. Here's what you've got to do. You've got to lean in a little bit more. Take out a pen, even if you're not a note taker. Pretend like you're taking notes, or take them. Laugh. I don't think he has very many jokes, but if he but if he does, laugh even if his jokes aren't funny. Okay. Give him your give him eye contact. Uh, lean in. Smile at him. Let him see. Although many of you have masks on, so he can't see. You're, look at him with your eyes. Smile at him with your eyes. Okay. Uh, and let's celebrate uh, this morning that God is answering. And, and Austin's not the only one. James Voissart is going to seminary. Devin Taylor is a young guy in our church. We have we have Bud uh, Daniel. We have four or five young guys that are, that are at RTS right now, so God is doing something, and I'm super excited. And Austin, thanks for being willing to do this. Uh, Austin's serving me. We were on vacation this past week, so I didn't have to prepare a sermon because he's doing it, so he was a big help to me too. So can we pray for him as he comes and just pray for that vision that we just talked about? So Father, uh, as Austin comes, we just give you thanks that you mean what you say, that you've told us to pray and we have, 
and you are answering those prayers. And so we, we, we look forward to uh, the ministry that our children and our grandchildren and the generations will have in the city that we love towards the goal of making your invisible kingdom visible here, of having a, a, a significant visible impact, which we know is on your heart. Uh, but we, we look forward this morning to hearing from Austin. And so give us hearts that are glad to hear, not from him, but to hear the good news. Today is a day of good news. Every Sunday when we gather is a day of good news because we're good news people. And so he has good news to share with us, and we should be, uh, we should be hungry and glad to receive it from him. And so uh, make it so in our hearts, and then because it is so in our hearts, help it to show up on our faces as we, uh, as we engage with your word this morning. Austin is just the vessel. You, Lord Jesus, you are the preacher. And so I pray, just as in Revelation 19, that you ride out to conquer and subdue the nations and to conquer and subdue our hearts with the, the, with the sword that comes out of your mouth, the spoken word, the foolishness of preaching is conquering the world. May it conquer us this morning too. And may our hearts be gladdened by the good news of your gospel. We pray for our friend and our brother and our faithful servant. Uh, give him uh, great wisdom as he speaks to us. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Uh, thank you, Drew, for that awesome uh, introduction. As Drew just said, I'm Austin Snively. I've gone here. Whoa, this moves. That's new. <laughs> Not going to lean on that anymore. Um, I've gone here since uh, I was about 12 years old, and I'm just really excited to be able to be up here with y'all this morning. Uh, I'm not a pastor here, like he said. I'm working on it. Um, so one day, hopefully, I'll get to be a pastor in this network as well. Uh, for those of you that don't know, we've been in a sermon series on Ecclesiastes, talking about life as gift, not gain. And it's really learning where to find true contentment in this world of vanity. And when we hear vanity, it's really easy for us to think bad, useless, not helpful. But really what we're trying to get at with that word, what the preacher in Ecclesiastes is trying to get at with that word is something that's not bad, but it's ultimately unsatisfying. It's something you can never find your purpose in. You see, it forces us to ask the question how we define the good life. What has captured our hearts? We often operate with wrong visions of what the good life is because we have idols of pleasure or money or status or success, which we've talked about in the previous sermons. It's why I got nervous when Drew asked me to preach a couple weeks ago because getting up here and preaching was my opportunity to prove my worth, that it was a good idea to hire me. This was gain for me. <laughs> um, but when we see life as gift, uh, all these things, all of these different idols that we serve, uh, they're simply lesser things that can never allow us to find our true contentment, even if they are gifts that can be enjoyed. Uh, so with that, we're going to read from Ecclesiastes 11 and 12 this morning, and then we'll get started. Uh, it's in the back of your worship folder. From Ecclesiastes 11. In the morning sow your seed, and in the evening withhold not your hand. For you do not know which will prosper, this or that, or whether both alike will be good. So if a person lives many years, let him rejoice in all of them. But let him remember the days of darkness will be many, and all comes to vanity. Rejoice, O young man, in your youth, and let your heart cheer you on in the days of your youth. Walk in the ways of your heart and the sight of your eyes, but know that for all these things God will bring you into judgment. Remove vexation from your heart and put away pain from your body. 
for youth and the dawn of life are vanity. And from chapter 12, remember also your creator in the days of your youth before the evil days come and the years draw near of which you will say, I have no pleasure in them. Before the sun and the light and the moon and the stars are darkened and the clouds return after the rain and the day when the keepers of the house tremble and the strong men are bent and grinders cease because they are few and those who look through the windows are dimmed and the doors on the street are shut when the sound of the grinding is low and one rises up at the sound of the bird, all of the daughters of song are brought low. They are afraid also of what is high and tares, and in the way the almond tree blossoms, the grasshopper drags itself along and desire fails because man is going to his eternal home. And the mourners go about the streets before the silver cord is snapped or the golden bowl is broken or the pitcher is shattered at the fountain or the wheel broken at the cistern and the dust returns to the earth as it was and the spirit returns to God who gave it. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher, all is vanity. The end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether evil or good. Uh, so where are we now? We're at the conclusion of the book. The preacher basically says, live well, young and old, because death is coming and judgment is on the other side. And that can be kind of intimidating. Um, and we're going to look at how youth and age have unique opportunities and temptations in regards to how we do that well, how we define the good life, and what the Lord says that really is. In youth, embrace the opportunity that's before you push into the uniqueness of being young. Don't, you don't have to long for the next stage of life. And in old age, resist the temptation of weariness and not looking back on the days of your youth, longing for that instead because the Lord has given you a good purpose there as well. In both cases, as David Gibson says in his book, living life backwards, we're to live shaped by death, but not shrouded in it. I want to hear shrouded, and I picture that uh, cartoon with the rain cloud over his head, just walking along, kind of trudging. Um, so we're not, supposed, we're not called to live like that when we think about death. But it is made to force the question, if death is coming and judgment is on the other side, what does that mean for how we avoid the vanity of age, young or old? And where can we find the power to live up to that call? So looking at youth, what is the opportunity of youth? What specifically does youth have to offer? Uh, we're going to jump to 1 Timothy 4.12, where Paul tells us, let no one despise you for your youth, but set for the believers an example in speech, in conduct, and in purity. To those of us on the younger end of the congregation, in, including myself, I'm preaching to myself this morning as much as anybody else, Ecclesiastes and 1 Timothy call us to a high standard. What does it look like to give the best of yourself to the kingdom in your youth? Paul said, just there, set an example in speech and conduct and impurity. It's a call to live righteously, to have your heart set on the ways of the Lord like David in the Psalms when he says, the law of the Lord is my delight. And there's this temptation to think that serving the Lord can wait until we're older. Uh, that our culture has defined the good life as doing whatever we think is fun and self-serving at the moment. Uh, it's kind of exemplified in what's become known as the college experience. You know, go off, have your four years find yourself, do whatever you want, then maybe graduate, get a job, and learn what it means to be responsible afterwards. The church might come back into the picture when you have kids. But ultimately what that is is just a self-centered life gain. And we assume a call to follow the Lord is a call to being a boring, self-righteous, moralistic person that nobody really likes to hang out with. Uh, but that's not what he's calling us to in the slightest. 
You see, a call to right living doesn't mean being a stick in the mud who cares more about rules than people. That was the Pharisees' mistake, and Jesus ridiculed them more than anybody else in his ministry. So we want to avoid that, and how do we do that? We do that by rejoicing and living well in the gifts that he's given us. Look there at chapter 11, verse 9. It's a command to enjoy the good gifts of creation. He says, rejoice in the days of your youth. Walk in the ways of the heart and the sight of your eyes. You see, the good life is not the pursuit of money or pleasure or success. It's being in right relationship with the Lord and his gifts. And not enjoying them is just as much of a sin as enjoying them too much, as the older brother and the younger brother, right? You can fall into sin on both sides, and both lead us to judgment. I'm going to use my wife as an example this morning, which made her a little bit nervous, but um, if I'm going to keep doing this, she's probably going to have to get used to it. Uh, (laughs) But she gets really nervous when people give her gifts because she is always worried that her reaction to the gift is not going to, uh, you know, make them happy. You get a, when you give a gift, you're excited for the look of joy on somebody's face when they get it. And whenever Aubrey Ann is like, get thinking about that, getting worked up, she's like, what if I don't react right? And they don't think I like the gift. And, but the heart behind that is she knows the gift is meant to be enjoyed, Right? And she doesn't want to disappoint the person that loves her. And if you think about it from the other side, spending time and effort to find a great and wonderful gift for somebody you love and give them, and you're excited for that look of joy, just to have them say, eh, thanks, and leave it in the box, that's not, that's not what you're looking for. It was meant to be enjoyed. It was meant to be used. And it's just as offensive to not use it at all as it is to go out and break it. Again, from David Gibson's book, Living Life Backwards, no parent is glad when Buzz Lightyear sits pristinely in a box rather than being lovingly bumped and bruised in daily adventures. And that's what the Lord has given us. If we go back to 1 Timothy again, Paul tells us in verse 4, everything created by God is good and nothing is to be rejected if received with thanksgiving, for it is made holy by the word and by prayer. So commit to enjoying the earthly gifts of God. Food, drink, fellowship, laughter, work, whatever it is, they are good and they are gifts and they are given to you to be enjoyed. A quote from C.S. Lewis in his book, The Screwtape Letters, says, He is a hedonist at heart. All of those fasts and vigils and crosses, they're merely a facade. Out at his sea, there is pleasure and more pleasure. He has filled the world full of pleasures. There are things to do all the day long without him minding in the slightest. God, i got to stop leaning on this thing. (laughs) You see, seeing creation as gift allows us to see life as gift as well. He's generous in blessing us with the gifts of creation. We don't need to serve the idols that we do because God gave them for us, not us for them. But as much as he's commanded us to enjoy these gifts, he's also told us that the true vision of the good life is a relationship with him. And if we look there in chapter 12, verse 1, it reminds us to serve our creators in the days of our youth. The word creator there is meant to bring us back to Genesis 1 and 2. It's meant to put us in the mindset of the creation account. It's meant to remind us that the world was made good and a gift to enjoy. But it is just that it is a gift. And it's not God. Richard Baxter was a a Puritan pastor, and he said, the most dangerous mistake our souls are capable of is to take the creature for God and the earth for heaven. Why? Because when we do this, God becomes the cosmic wishing well. He's just another way to gain a cheap fix of idolatry. We no longer see our relationship 
with him is the true vision of the good life. When I was reading another book in preparation for this this week, uh, this analogy is something I came across and it made me laugh. Uh, it's like playing soccer with a watermelon. Uh, and I read it and I kind of laughed and thought, well, it's, it's a pretty good example. If you ever imagine a kid going outside and trying to play soccer with a watermelon, I imagine it hurts to kick the watermelon and that's no fun and then it's gonna break and he can't play soccer anymore and the next thing you know, he's disappointed. But it doesn't mean the watermelon's bad. You see, the gifts that God has given us can't satisfy because they aren't meant to, and he is. So in your youth, learn to seek his presence, enjoy his generosity, and live generously as a response because he has given so much to you. There is no reason to live for the created gifts. But that aside, that brings us back to the question, what does you specifically have to offer? It's likely not money. I know it's not for me. Um, but time, presence, energy, your passions, there are a million things you can give yourself in. And we're called to give the best of ourselves freely for the sake of others. See, in service and self-forgetfulness, we can actually find happiness. Because as we've said throughout this whole series, living life is gain, living selfishly, always looking for the next best thing, never being content where we are, will continue to leave us empty because there's always going to be something better. But if it's a gift, then you have nothing left to strive for. So you can give without concern for what you get in return because you know you've already been given more than you could ever need. So now in your youth, do kingdom work, share the gospel, strive to live as our savior. Do the hard but good work that is rejoicing in the law of the Lord, loving others well and being a light of hope in a culture that is frankly quite hopeless. Because that kind of life, life as gift, is marked with a joy that defies the anxiety and depression-filled world that you find yourselves in. Uh, over the years, our church has done an entrance into manhood ceremony with, with boys in the congregation about 12 to 14, not to say now you're a man, but rather to say you're getting to an age where you can learn what it means to seek the Lord. I remember going through this as a 13-year-old and listening to one of the men at that table read off the great accomplishments of young men throughout history, and it was a really long list. Uh, it was probably like the longest part. I think I kind of trailed off there at the end. But it was meant to encourage me as a young man not to wait until I got older to live well. And let it be an encouragement to you, too, whether you're 13 or you're 30. Uh, just because you're young does not mean you have to wait until you have all the answers because we're never going to. You don't need to have the right job or you don't even need to have a job in general. You don't have to wait to be married and have kids before you're mature enough to have an opinion. You don't have to let anyone despise you for your youth. And that word despise there is really more of a dismiss. You don't have to let anyone think less of you because of your station in life because the Lord has given you all gifts and asked you to use them now in service of his kingdom. And all that requires is a commitment to seeking him and seeing life as a gift. But if there's a uniqueness to the days of our youth, so is there a uniqueness to the days of our old age. And I know this probably is going to sound weird coming from a 23-year-old and somebody's out there going, what in the world does this kid know? Uh, and I can say that because every year I got older, anybody that was younger than me was always just, oh, those little kids. Just kind of dismissive. Um, but the good news is, it's not the words I have to say. I am just bringing to you what the word of the Lord has to say. So uh, looking there in chapter 11, verse 6, he says, don't withdraw your hand. 
And what he's saying is don't yearn for the days of your youth and the weariness of your toil. Don't become discouraged by the culture you find yourself in, the life situation you find yourself in, or what may seem like a small harvest. Enjoy all the days given because that's what we're called to do. Look there in 11.8. It is another call to enjoy the gifts of life and creation because there is a gift to every day and every stage of life that is given to us by the Lord. Humanity is obsessed with ignoring and evading death. Plastic surgery, beauty products, healthcare supplements, the list goes on. There are whole industries dedicated to avoiding it. I mean, half the reason Florida was even found is because some guy decided to sail around on a boat looking for a fountain that would make him young forever. So this isn't new. This is something that we've been dealing with for a long time. Um, but our culture has defined the good life of old ages, retiring and living for me, going back to the days of our youth saying, I've paid my dues. But Ecclesiastes isn't about that. It's about living in light of the ultimately unsatisfying nature of this temporal life. Needing to realize that the good life isn't found in right relationship with God and others. It is about living in light of death and not fleeing from it. There in chapter 12, the second half of verse 1 all the way through verse 8, it's all about the curse that sin and death brought upon us. It's an analogy for the uncreation of our earthly bodies. Windows and doors, your eyes and your ears, they shut to the light and the sound from the outside world. Strength fails where it says the strong man is bent, unable to defend his home. This, at some level, is what will happen to us if we live long enough. But that's not made to, that's not made to make us live with that proverbial cloud over our heads. Despairing with one foot already in the grave, it's meant rather to be a reminder that there is this fleeting nature to life. And what do we do when we come face to face with it? How do we deal with that vanity? Embracing the opportunity of age looks like sowing the seeds of the gospel wherever you're at in life. Still, continue to do that because you never know which act of kingdom work will be used in powerful ways by the Lord. Continue to give the Lord what is unique about old age as much as the young can give what is uniquely theirs. Galatians 6, 9 tells us there is a harvest. Don't give up. Continue doing kingdom work. Now, maybe you've accumulated wealth and you can afford to be financially generous to seeing his work done in your community and around the world. Maybe you've spent a lifetime married to the same person and you can help young marriages, wondering where that feeling of love has gone, and you can set an example for what that looks like. But in everything, you are called to pass on your faith to the next generation. You see, in the evening years, as the preacher says, seek out the young. Titus 2 commands elders in the congregation to seek out and exhort the young to live in light of their mistakes. To create multi-generational relationships. And this is way more than just telling young people what to do or how to live. It is entering into the lives of us on the younger end of the congregation. It's remembering what it was like to be in that stage of life and loving us well. It's to encourage us along the way because you have the opportunity to pass on your faith to the next generation just as the church has always been called to do. As far back as the giving of the law and in Deuteronomy when it's recounted, there's a command to pass on your faith. And that was what the big failure of the Israelites going into the promised land was. So continue to live generously. Continue to live life as gift instead of gain all of your days because setting that example is more helpful than anything I can say from up here. The preacher is coming to grips with his age in Ecclesiastes and the realization of his age and impending bodily death leads him to write this book. 
It leads him to pass on the only way of life that isn't vanity. And that is the opportunity that y'all have, and I, I encourage you to embrace that. So really, we can see the temptations of youth and old age are similar. There are temptations to live for gain, to live for self, and the opportunities are similar as well, to continue to serve the Lord and enjoy his creation and to live life as gift. You see the end of the matter there at the end of the chapter 12 and verses 13 and 14, death is coming whether you're young or old and judgment is on the other side. So how do we stare down that reality and avoid the temptations of youth and age? Where do we get that power? In 13 and 14, it says to fear God and to keep his commandments. And we've talked about the fear of the God before. It's not a shaking in your boots, afraid you might get struck down at any moment fear. Rather, it's what Martin Luther referred to as a filial fear. It's a tremendous reverence and respect and love for the Father and a realization that we are in the presence of the Lord, creator and redeemer of all things. And wherever that is present, we can't help but keep his commandments because we realize who it is that's giving him and that he's for us. But there's a problem with that. Uh, we can't do it. We, we just can't. Because our hearts are so wired to alternate saviors in their natural state, we try to live life as gain. We try to work our way to salvation. We try and do anything but fear God and keep his commandments. In youth and in age, we don't properly enjoy his gifts. And we can't do kingdom work in our own power because of that. None of our attempts to fear God and keep his commandments will ever earn us the stamp of approval we're seeking because we worship so wrongly so often. So where do we go? You go to the only place you can, which is the foot of the cross. Because the good news of the gospel is that we need not live in fear of death because that judgment has already been brought on him. In Christ, the verdict is already in. We have been declared righteous and told, well done, good and faithful servant. <laughs> so know then, Christian, that the call to fear God and keep his commandments is a call to find a place where your heart not want for anything because you have found the only thing that can truly satisfy. Augustine said, our hearts are restless until they find rest in you. This is a call to come and rest in the finished work of Christ, to come and see the generosity and the goodness of the Lord your God and glorify him by enjoying his presence now and forever. That's what the true, life, true good life really is. That's what we've been made for. Only by the power of the gospel can our hearts be continually reoriented to the true vision of what the good life is. Only from that relationship with the Trinity can we truly give ourselves freely for the sake of the gospel all of our days. Because we know in the gospel we already have all things. There's nothing left to strive for. You see, knowing death is coming scares our culture, whether you're young or you're old. Because we see life as gain, and death reveals that to be vanity. But when we are in Christ, when we know that we have been redeemed, that life is a gift, it simply urges us to live with great love for God and great love for neighbor, which is exactly what we're called to do. So let's pray. Uh, Father, we just pray now that you would, you would heal our hearts, that you would let us know that no other stage of life or any idol that we worship, no living for gain will ever satisfy the deepest 
desires of our hearts. Give us the desire to seek you above all else, the desire to fear you and to keep your commandments and continually remember that the only true vision of what the good life is is a relationship with you. To know that in you we can finally rest and need not want for anything. Pray these things in your son's name. Amen. Thank you for being here. Austin, great job. Uh, I told him, you guys, if you clap again, you're going to make me really self-conscious unless, <laughs> I mean, I, I expect applause when I'm finished next week or I'm going to be very insecure. No, I think that's great. You don't know, I did him dirty. That was, that's a really, I mean, that was a really hard text. I mean, to preach Ecclesiastes, your first sermon, most seasoned preachers just stay away from that book. So great job. You are the sermon as much as your sermon, which is neat. Um, and so that I, if you're, if you're a child or a teenager here, I hope that seeing him do that emboldens you to believe that if you're young, you have something to offer. Don't let fear of the expectations of people get in the way of you giving your gift to the church. If you're older, don't let the fear of death and kind of the, 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 the twilight of your life beginning to fall, don't let that make you afraid uh, to just to stop giving uh, whatever it is God has given to you. What great words, right? And the, and the, the way you can do that is to know uh, that no matter who you are, no matter what your background might be, no matter what age group you belong to, if your faith is in the Lord Jesus, then these words of benediction are your words. Because of what Jesus has done in uh, his death and resurrection, we can now go in the full assurance that God's face is turned towards us and that he is set to bless and to be gracious to us in all things. So receive these words. If you're young, go and be busy with kingdom work. If you're older, go and be busy with kingdom work. All of us, go and be busy with kingdom work, knowing this to be true. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you his peace, both now and forevermore. Amen. God bless you. Go in his peace. See you next week.